Well, we exist as, as human beings for the fame of God's name. And indeed, we gather together today for the fame of God's name. So we, when we come together, our primary objective here isn't you. It isn't the individual. Our primary objective is to bring God glory and honor and fame that He is due, that is, He is worthy of. And so even during this time, my goal is not primarily to, to please you, but to bring God fame and honor. And so that ought to be our goal as we gather together as a people, as the people of God and under His name and for His glory. And so to that end, I encourage you to open up your Bibles, if you have one, to 2 Corinthians. We've been working through this book of the Bible we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll finish 2 Corinthians 3 today. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen for you, or feel free to grab one over here and keep it if you don't have one. And let's pray to God as we go to Him in His Word that He would be honored and glorified during this time. Father, help us as we gather together around Your Word, that You would instruct us, that You would encourage us, that You would equip us, and that You would send us with Your Word. Father, we May the things that need to be done to change our, our sinful hearts be done. May the places where we've brought in baggage be dumped out to You. And God, may You be honored in all of these things in our lives and in this church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. A ministry of death sounds like a pretty daunting thing. Scary thing. To be a minister of death, once again, also sounds scary. We have some ministers of death around us, in our midst. So if you're scared, watch out. They're called hunters. They deal in death. right? They have a ministry of death and they deal out death. This is what they bring to the world. They, they're dealing out death. In fact, we're going to have a, a congregation of these ministers of death. And we call it the Men's Wild Game Dinner. Right? You could come after these guys have dealt out death to these animals. They will bring them together so that we can all enjoy them. We have these ministers of death in our midst. And Paul, as he's talked about the Old Testament, has talked about the Old Covenant as a ministry of death. And there were indeed ministers, in a sense, of death. But here's the thing. Just like hunters who are ministers of death, in a sense, there's some glory with it. Right? Some of you hunters are getting ready to say, yeah, that's right. There's glory in dealing out some death. Why do I know this? Well, I know this because you put dead things on your wall. Like, why do you do that? Because there's glory in this ministry of death. You've dealt out death and you want to parade it for people to see. Look at what I have done. There's glory in this ministry of death. And indeed, as Paul talks about the Old Covenant, as a ministry of death, he says there's glory in this covenant. There's glory in this ministry. But here's what the Old Covenant and hunters, they all have, they all have some, some glory. But it isn't glory because of life. It's glory because of its death, because of what it brings about. And then Paul is going to say that there's something better than that. There's this new covenant that he's been talking about. And this is a ministry of life, not of death. And it has greater glory than the old covenant does. More glory than any ministry of death would ever have. See, hunters don't go out to the forest and breathe life into things. That, that would be something to see. That would be glorious. They go out to take life. And so what Paul does is he, is he contrasts these two covenants. The, this old covenant, this ministry of death, and this new covenant, this ministry of life. And he contrasts these two covenants in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 7. 
And he begins to inform them. Not only just he continues to inform them on the nature of his ministry and what he's doing, but he also wants them to grasp the glory and the greatness of this new covenant and of its ministry. So he begins with these contrasts between the two covenants, and he kind of gives three main contrasts in verses 7 through 11. So if you look in verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. We'll stop there for just a second, but you can already see there, here's the contrast. There's a contrast between death and there's a contrast between life. The old covenant was a ministry of death. That was the ministry of the law. The ministry of, he says, the letter, which was written on stone, and it was a ministry of death. Why? Because what the law did is it condemned everybody underneath it. If you're guilty of one part of the law and everybody's guilty of at least one part, then you're guilty of all of it. You stand condemned under God's judgment. You stand as one who is guilty of this law. And so this is why when the ministry of the Old Covenant comes, you all stand condemned. It's a ministry of death. It says you deserve to die because you haven't lived up to the standard that God has set out for you. And yet, this ministry of death came with a lot of glory. It was still this glorious ministry, even though it sounds kind of like this is a morbid thing, this ministry of death came with much glory. Now I think it's important since this word glory is used so often in this passage that we kind of define what we're talking about. Glory is one of those words that is not real easy to put their finger on, but we're going to try. And here's what John Piper says. This is a really succinct, good definition of, I think, says that the, the God's glory is the infinite worth of God gone public. It's the beauty of God, the goodness of God, the greatness of God proclaimed to the world, communicated in some way. How great and how awesome our God is somehow communicated to us. That's the glory of God. That's what we're talking about here. And so what does he mean when he says that the old covenant came with glory? What could that mean for us? Well, in this passage, Paul's referring to Exodus chapter 34, a passage in the Old Testament. You can turn there if you want. And in Exodus chapter 34... Here's what we read, starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, just quick update on where we're at here. Moses had gone up to Sinai, received the law, came down, saw this golden calf incident with the Israelites, threw the tablets down, they broke. God calls him back up to Sinai. He gets the law written back down for him. And so that's where we are. He's going back down. He came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. And as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that his skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. God had talked to him, wrote letters on stone for him. Moses is just soaking this up and he comes down. And Aaron, it says in verse 30, And all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. If someone came down from a mountain and their face is glowing, I think you have some some good judgment there if you're a little bit scared of what's happening. Like, this isn't normal activity. Your face looks like it's glowing. And in receiving this old covenant, this letter written on stone, this letter of the law, Moses' face was glowing, it says, because he talked with God. His face is glowing. God was writing down words on stone that would bring condemnation to people because He knows they don't live up to these things. And it's still so glorious that even this ministry of death, these letters and words of condemnation, make Moses' face glow. It's a glorious thing. So glorious that the people wouldn't even look at him. They were scared of him. They, they couldn't take it in fully. And so what does Moses do? 
He puts a veil over his face so that they wouldn't be able to gaze into it fully. Now, why, why does he do that? Well, there are all sorts of debates, all sorts of thoughts and reasons why, why Moses veils his face. And I would just encourage here, like if you've read anything about this, like this is a tough thing. And, and part of my answer is, I don't know. But the other part is, is don't overinterpret, alright? Don't try too much. Don't try so much to figure out all the minor, minor little details. We, we just come to it and we, we don't know. Here's why. Because just the Israelites weren't allowed to. That's why. So Moses veiled his face. That's good enough for me. I hope it's good enough for you. They, couldn't, they weren't allowed to continue staring at this glory on Moses' face, so he veiled it. That's, that's what we come down to. Now, was this because this glory of God uh, was going to lash out at them if, if he sees these sinful peoples as it encounters sinful Israel and, and the glory of God if they encounter one another that, that maybe God is going to strike out in judgment on them? Maybe. I, I, I don't know. But here, here we just we don't have all the details. Likely it was due kind of like God is so holy that His presence and even mediated through Moses doesn't seem to mesh well with, with sinful, hardened people. And so somewhat, I think that's kind of what's going on. He veiled his face because that's how God would want it, between himself and a sinful people who aren't being made righteous. And so in a sense, nearness to God in their state, in their sinfulness, in their hard hearts, is not for their good. This seems to match up with other places. If you look in Exodus chapter 19, when God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai, He tells him, my glory is descending upon this mountain. The people, they need to stay off the mountain. If they touch the mountain, I'm going to kill them. Because this is a different time now. You can't just approach me any way you want. And he says, the priests, they need to consecrate themselves. Because if they're not, I will break out against them, is what the text says. God's glory is so great and so awesome that He will break out against sinful people if they do not approach Him in the right way. We also see this in the tabernacle. God's presence uniquely dwelled in this place called the Holy of Holies, this inner chamber that was cut off from everybody. You couldn't even see into this. There were veils in between. There was barriers between the people and God's presence. Why? Because if they just came into God's presence any way they wanted to, they would be destroyed because they're sinful. God's holiness does not dwell with sinfulness, so they couldn't go in. And only one could go in at a certain time of the year and only with the sacrifice, only with cleansing and all you know, this ritual because that's where the presence of God dwells and you don't just approach Him in any way. And the reality is, is that the same is true for us. Now, we stand before God condemned. God's nearness, this is odd to hear in church, but God's nearness is not our good in our sinfulness. We don't want to be near God in our sin because we should die because of that. This is the ministry of the Old Covenant. You deserve to die because God is holy and He's demanded holiness and you haven't lived up. You deserve death. And so God's nearness is not our good either. So we need to be careful with saying things like, God, I want to see you. Well, maybe you do, but maybe you don't. Because if you see God, you'd probably die because you're sinful. And the people that see God in the, in the Scripture, like Isaiah does, put curses on themselves. And say, I'm ruined because I've just seen the holy of holies and I deserve destruction. He understood it. So we need to be careful of saying, I want to see you, God. Moses asked that question and God says, okay, just I'll, I'll give it to you this time. But you're going to have to hide and you're going to have to be hidden by a rock. And then you can only see the backside of my glory. Just a tiny little glimpse. Or else it would have been too much for Moses as well. So the old covenant was this, this glorious thing. 
But it was still a ministry of death. And what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 3 is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater, right? The lesser had some glory. So much that you can't approach God in any way. There's glory on Moses' face. It has to be veiled. Now that's the lesser. Let's look at the greater. You see in verse 8, he says this. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And indeed, the answer is yes. This is a ministry of life. It has more glory. And he gives here the second contrast as you keep reading in verse 9. So the first was this ministry of death and life. And here's the second contrast. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of the Old Covenant, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. There's two ministries, a ministry of death and a ministry of life, a ministry of condemnation and a ministry of righteousness. These are the things that he is contrasting. Now, the old covenant was righteous. It was good and it demanded righteousness, but it never delivered the power to be righteous in the people. It only brought condemnation. A righteous covenant only brought condemnation because of the sinfulness of people. You think of Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Here's a man who is a superstar in the Jewish world. He is the elite in terms of the religious establishment. This is one of them. His name is Nicodemus. And he comes to Jesus and starts talking to him. And what does Jesus tell him? He says, you're not in the kingdom of God. There's only one way to enter the kingdom of God. You think that you've entered it because you've been born from Abraham. You think maybe that you can enter the kingdom of God because you go to the temple. You think that maybe you've entered the kingdom of God because you are outwardly righteous. But here's what has to happen for you. Your righteousness, it's not enough. You need to be born again. Your righteousness won't allow you to stand and be a part of the kingdom of God. You need something else. You need to be born again. And here's what the new covenant does. is It takes people like Nicodemus and you and me and it offers us righteousness. Even though we aren't righteous. Because it happens through Jesus. See, what Jesus does is that He comes and He perfectly fulfills the old covenant. Keeps every letter of the law. And it's through Him and through our trusting and belief in Him that we receive righteousness. And so what happens is this exchange where Jesus is righteous and we are not righteous. But what He does is He takes our unrighteous record and gives us His righteous record. So He dies and we get His perfect record of righteousness. That's what's happening. Romans three twenty-one and 22 says it well. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The way to be righteous, which the law demands, which God demands, is through Jesus. You can't do it in and of yourself. You have to trust another. You must trust Jesus. As sinners, we can be counted righteous because we trust in Jesus. This is what's going on here in the New Covenant. So what it means to be righteous, it means to be accepted in the sight of God. It means to be in right relationship to Him. It means to be welcomed in His presence where we shouldn't be welcomed. It means to have life. Because before a holy God, the only way to be alive is to be righteous. And we get this through Christ. So those in the new covenant, those believers, the nearness of God now isn't for our bad, it's for our good. And so we sing this even as well. That the nearness of God, because of the righteousness we have received from Christ, is our good. good summary of this, I think, is this saying that, that some think originates from John Barrage. And it says this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. 
far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and it gives us wings. Both covenants show us this gracious God, this merciful God, this loving God. Because what a covenant is, is saying God wants relationship with you and He's showing you how that can happen. So any relationship with God at all as sinners is a gracious thing. So the old covenant is a gracious covenant. And He says to them, this is what's required for you to be in right relationship with Me. That is a gracious thing for God to show us that. But it also shows us that no one lives up. We can't do it. We can't be in right relationship with God on our own. And what the new covenant does is God saying, I still want relationship with you. You can't fulfill the old covenant. So you know what? I'll do it for you. This is the gospel. Jesus fulfills the covenant for us. Where we could not do it. Where we failed time and time again. Jesus fulfills it. So we don't fulfill the old covenant or the new covenant. We just trust the one who did. We trust in Jesus. The requirement now is faith in Christ. And he says, come to me. But you only come through Jesus. You don't come any other way. There's no other way to come and be righteous before me. And so we sing, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. There's no other way unless you're dressed in his righteousness. You will not stand before the throne in any other way. And so what Paul is saying is that that covenant, that ministry is of surpassing glory. Do we see it? That we now as sinners can be called righteous. That we now are empowered to obey. Where we didn't have feet or hands from the old covenant. Now we've been given wings to fly in this new covenant because of Jesus. Sinners get the very presence of God. He will put His Spirit in us. And it will be given to us without us dying. Which is a pretty big deal because the old covenant and the old testament, they didn't have that. They couldn't have the presence of God around them without God specially being gracious to them or killing them because of it. And He does do that at times. The nearness of God is now our good in the new covenant through Jesus. And we need to grasp the glory and the greatness of this covenant as Paul describes it here. God wants relationship with us. And where we failed and could not live up and could not get that relationship established... God did it for us. He sends Jesus to get relationship with us. Tim Keller says it this way, I am so flawed that Jesus had to die. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This is what's going on in the New Covenant. And so Paul is clear. The ministry of righteousness is surpassing in glory to the ministry of condemnation. And indeed, he continues on in verse 10 and says this, Indeed, in this case... What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. You guys might know what this is. You see this? You might look at the shape and size. This is an iPod. Um, you guys remember that? It seems like a dinosaur at this point. And you can just play music on it. That's all it does is it stores and holds music. Some of you kids don't know what this is. This isn't that old. That's the problem here. When I first got this, Catherine got this for me. I think this is like a $200 thing right here. This was the top of line. This was amazing. I was amazed with this thing. I love this thing. Look at this awesome iPod. Top of the technology list, right? This is the latest and greatest thing that came out. And I loved it. But now, it's obsolete. Does anybody have an actual iPod anymore? Everybody has it on their phone. There's a few iPods floating around. Good. Not many people are, are going out and buying iPods anymore. 
Because there's newer and better things. There's definitely newer and better ones than this. This isn't even a touch screen. You can't touch it and pick your song. You have to use this little analog thing. I, this is a dinosaur now. It's old. It's obsolete. We just use it for noise. A noise machine in our daughter's bedroom so she can sleep. That's all we use it for. We don't even use it anymore. Other things have surpassed it in glory and in greatness. We've moved on to other things. And the old covenant is like this iPod. It had glory. It was good in and of its time. Like there was a lot of good in it. There was something to be celebrated there. There was a lot of glory. It was bright and it was blazing. But the new covenant comes along and it outshines it. It's like a candle compared to a thousand spotlights is what's going on here. The, the, the new covenant vastly outshines it and then it brings life. It doesn't bring death anymore. It doesn't bring condemnation. It says not only will God be with you, He will be in you. It says not only will you not be condemned, you will be righteous in Christ Jesus. This is the new covenant and it's outshining. It's outstripping the old covenant in greatness and in glory. And indeed, Paul says, here's the third contrast that he gives here that shows the surpassing glory of the new covenant even more. If you look in verse 11, he says this, For what was being brought to an end came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. So the old covenant is the third contrast. It was temporary. Whereas the new covenant comes along and it is permanent. It's not like an iPod. You don't have to worry about an upgrade coming soon so you feel a little bit of regret when you buy something because you know in like six months something new is coming out. When you go to the new covenant, you know this is permanent. It is lasting. Its glory will not fade away. It's a permanent thing for us. The old covenant, that was for a limited time. The new covenant is permanent. And it has surpassing glory. Think about that. The new covenant is permanent. I, don't, I feel like I'm more excited about that than you guys are right now. It is permanent. Like we are righteous in Christ. We don't deserve this. We get the Spirit of God inside of us. We don't deserve this. We get life when we deserve death. We deserve to be condemned. We really, instead of getting taken away, Smashed out by God. We get propped up. Our, we, we've been upgraded. And this upgrade is successful and it's never going to weigh. As desperate sinners, we need to grasp onto the glory that's in the new covenant. We, we don't understand how bad our condemnation is often. So we don't understand how good it is that we're counted righteous. And so what Paul does is he, he shows us. There's, here's why this is so much greater in glory than the old covenant. He gives us three contrasts, alright? Death and life, condemnation and righteousness, one is fading and one, one is permanent. And because of this permanency of the new covenant, Paul says this, as, he says, as a bold minister of the gospel, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. He is very bold in his ministry of the new covenant. He's willing to put it out there because it's no longer a ministry of condemnation. It's a ministry of life. Moses had to not be as bold. He has a different way of of being a minister of his covenant where Paul says we are very bold because we have a hope. This is a permanent covenant. We have great hope in Christ. This is very much unlike Moses. Moses veiled his face. He put something over his face. Paul's not doing this. He has boldness. He's not putting anything over his face. He's putting it out there. But why does Moses put something over his face? Once again, we, we, we don't know, but it says it was being brought to an end. Something was being brought to an end. A lot of people think that the glory on Moses' face was actually fading. And so he didn't want the people to see that. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. Because what Paul is doing in these verses 
is that he is speaking to the nature of the Old Covenant, not the nature of Moses' face or the veil or the hiding of this glory. And so what is going on here is not necessarily that the glory on Moses' face is going down. Like the glow is kind of going down. I don't think that's exactly what's going on. What's happening is the Old Covenant is being brought to an end. It's fading away. There's always a veil put on though, either way, by Moses. Separating the people and God. And that's what seems to be clear. There's a barrier in the Old Covenant between God and His people. A necessary barrier for them. This is what they needed. And that is clear. The veil is a barrier. People were cut off. They were refused full access to God, to the presence of God. But that's not the only issue. There's a lot more going on than that. If you look in 12 and 13... We said in 12 and then continuing on in 13, Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. So the fading was the fading of the old covenant, but that's not the only issue. There's a barrier, the veil, that's not the only issue. The issue is their, their minds are hardened. If you read the Old Testament, the Israelites, here's what they're known for. Rebellion. Rebellion, sinfulness. They rebelled against clear instructions from God. They did not follow things they said, you need to follow. And things he said, don't do, they did those things. They were rebellious people. Prophets were sent to them to describe to them their sin, to, to plead with them to turn away. And when they do with those prophets, they killed them. They were rebellious people. They had hardened Minds. And when they read, or when they heard the law, in that hardened condition, here's what happened. They refused to follow it. They refused to see it. And Paul says that that problem still remains. The rest of verse 14 says, For to this day, when they read the, the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. The veil, once again, is the spiritual obstruction. It's no longer talking about just the veil on Moses' face. It's talking about their hearts that are veiled. That's an obstruction in their hearts. They have this hardened disposition, a hardened mind and a hardened heart toward God. But what are they hardened to directly? What are they veiled from? And I think that the context here would say that the old covenant is fading away. And they're veiled to, they're hardened to that reality. That that covenant is soon to pass away. That there needs to be something else coming along. Does that make sense? So they they didn't see, and some still don't see, recognize what the old covenant was pointing to. That's what they were veiled to. That's what they were hardened to. There needs to be something better coming, because this didn't get it done. Because I keep trying to follow this law, and I can't do it. It doesn't give me feet or wings. I, I don't got any of these things. Like, I can't do it. So it ought to be pointing them to something better. They need to see the need for something better. But when they look at it with veiled hearts, hardened minds and hearts, they stubbornly refuse to go where the Old Covenant's going, where the Old Testament's going. And where is it going? It's going to Jesus. Time and time again, it's leading to Jesus. We read Isaiah. Did you not see Jesus all over the book of Isaiah when he did that together? And Paul, he's a, he's a great example of this. What does Paul do? Before he's Paul, he's Saul, right? Saul, the the Pharisee of Pharisees, he had a righteousness on his own. He didn't need another righteousness. He was fine. He was confident in his own merit under the old covenant. He was veiled. 
He missed it. He knew his Old Testament well. He likely had a lot of it memorized, but he still missed Jesus. He had a veiled heart, hardened disposition. And only through Jesus, the Scripture says, is that veil taken away. So the agent of change here is not the individual, but it's the Lord. Have you ever felt a barrier with God? Like, is that an understatement? Like, Yeah, we feel barriers with God at times. Things just don't seem to be getting through. I don't hear from God the way people say they do. Or I don't hear from God at all. So how am I supposed to go forward? How am I supposed to proceed? How am I supposed to fix this barrier? What do I need to do? The answer is is that you don't do anything. That it's in Christ and only in Him is that barrier taken away. The barrier that stands between humanity and God is taken away in Christ alone. And so what we need to do is we need to realize that we're in this hardened state and turn, as it says, to our need and in our need in Christ Jesus. We see our hardened state and we turn out of need. I can't figure this out. I know this needs to point to something greater. And so we turn in our need to another. Paul missed Jesus all through the Old Testament that he memorized. He missed the need for righteousness all through this old covenant that showed him he wasn't righteous. He missed it. He was veiled. Paul missed on Jesus, but Jesus didn't miss on Paul. Jesus removed that veil on the road to Damascus. His heart was veiled. He needed Christ. And what does Jesus come? He comes to him and he removes that veil. Hearts are veiled. Our hearts are veiled. So what do we need? We need to hear about Jesus. We need to hear about this new covenant. We need to hear about life in His name. We need to hear about righteousness and faith in Christ. That's what we need to hear. Because verse 16 is really clear to us. It says this, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When I was in college, I would deliver a newspaper. It's a college paper. I delivered it around campus. So rain or shine, just like the mailman, like five days a week, we were delivering newspapers. One day it was pretty icy out, and I'm getting around in my little car, and I'm doing all right for the most part, but I just get hung up on this random spot after I delivered a paper. So I had to stop. That was the first problem, to jump out and deliver some papers. And I get stuck on some ice, and I just cannot get going again. I'm reverse, drive, reverse. You know how this goes. Like anything you can do to just get this thing, the tires are just spinning. There are some guys inside this building. They come out, and we're like, all right, let's push this thing. Let's do this. So I'm like revving the engine as hard as I can. They're pushing along nothing. I'd exhausted all of my own efforts. I knew I had a way out of this, but I tried to avoid it because this is pretty early in the morning. And college guys do not like to be woken up early in the morning. Now, this wasn't real early to today's time, but this is like 6 a.m. And in like college time, that's like 2 a.m., right? It's early. So I called my cousin. I knew he could get me out. He has a pickup. He has a tow rope. I knew he would get me out. But I dreaded making that call because I knew it's 6 a.m. It's freezing outside, and you're going to have to come and get me. But what had happened was I had exhausted all of my resources, all of my efforts to get out of this problem. And I finally turned in my need, in desperation, to another. You see, only the desperate truly turn for help. Only the truly needy turn to others. I'm not asking for handouts. I wasn't asking Him for a handout. I'm asking Him for help. So we're not turning to God just for like, oh, why don't you just help me out in the middle of this. We're turning to God in our desperation. There's a veil here. We don't know what's going on. We need something. Do we see our desperation before God? Do we see our utter depravity, our need for God? Apart from Christ, that's that's what we need to see. There's desperation. 
Apart from the new covenant, we stand condemned before God. The law condemns us all. We stand before Him deserving the gavel to fall and to say, You now are dead. You have been judged and you have been found wanting. This is where we stand. That's our desperate condition. Or are we like so many in the Old Testament, even some today, who are still trying to seek our own righteousness and to somehow build it up by our own doing, by our own merit? Some of us think that, yeah, maybe I can't fulfill all of righteousness. Maybe I can't get the entire thing, but some of it? A little bit of it? 20%? 50%? Maybe I could get a percentage of righteousness on my own and I can contribute to it. And the new covenant comes to us and says, no, you can't. Paul, you're this great Pharisee of Pharisees. Your righteousness is like dung compared to the righteousness in Christ. This is what Paul, these are his words. We're desperate before him. And what the scriptures should be doing. Old Testament, New Testament, what they're doing are a few different things in our lives. Here's what they should always be doing. One, showing us our depravity. They're showing us that the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. It's with me. I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. I deserve the judgment of God. Scripture should be always doing this in our life. It is constantly pointing out sins. This is the problem. But it should be doing something else as well. When we read the Scripture, we should be seeing something. Because the Scripture isn't all about just pointing out problems. It's not this horrific book. It's an awesome book that has great news. Because what it also is doing is it's pointing out the solution. It's not inside of us. That's where the problem is. The answer, the solution is outside of us. It's in Christ. It's pointing us to Jesus over and over again. And so the question is, is when we turn to the Scriptures, that's what's being pointed out to us. Are we seeing our desperation before God? And are we seeing also what it's pointing to? How it's pointing us to Jesus over and over and over again. And if you're desperate, if you're needy, then turn to the Lord and let Him remove the veil from you and enter into the righteousness that you didn't deserve but Christ gained for you. This is what the Scripture is calling us to. I love the words from Jesus in Matthew 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. That is, you're you're sincerely... You're coming to Him with desperation in a sense. You have nowhere else to turn. You're asking Him... And what happens? It will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. These are people who are seeking genuinely, sincerely, with all that they have. I have nowhere else to turn. Ask and seek and knock, and it's going to be opened to you, Jesus says. The veil doesn't need to remain. Christ has made a way to take it away and He bids us come. He invites us to turn to Him. So we sing, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, sick and wounded from the fall. Jesus is ready. He stands to save you. If you tarry until you're better, you're never going to come. So not a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness Jesus requires of us is that we feel our need for Him. And there is freedom for hardened hearts and hardened minds in Christ. There is freedom from this veil, but it's only found in Jesus. And this is what Paul explains in 17. He says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom is this open relationship with God that we don't deserve. That's amazing for us. We are sinners. We don't deserve access to God. We deserve barrier after barrier. 
We've put barriers in place because of our sin. And yet, in this new covenant, in Christ, we have open access to God. That's freedom. That is liberty. There's no more barriers. No more veils. No more sin standing in the way. No more hardened hearts or hardened minds standing in the way. Because the gospel has liberated us from those. It has taken those barriers away. Before, there's a veil, there's a tabernacle, there's a holy of holies, there's, there's curtains in between, there's priests, there's sacrifices, there's all these barriers. Now, we're brought near by the blood of Christ, and we can have full access to God anytime, all the time. This is what is given to us in the new covenant. Access to God has been opened up to us in a glorious way. There's no more veil. Now, wedding veils were used for lots of different things. There's lots of different symbolism behind wedding veils. I'm just going to pick up on one. One of, one of the reasons was to kind of maybe symbolize in a sense, you know, uh, virginity, uh, purity. And so there was, there was a sense in which this was veiling total and full access to this person. And so what would happen in the, the wedding ceremony is that you couldn't see the person fully. Their face would be veiled. You couldn't even see their face fully. This is what a husband wants to do, right? Gaze into his love. Right? See their face. Maybe they're glowing in certain ways like Moses' face. Like it, it's a great day. And yet there's a veil there until time when the veil is removed. And this is a symbolism of, of consummation. There's full access has been granted now. You, oh, you are this person's and they are yours. This is what's going on here. And once full access has been granted, what do you think the husband wants to do? Gaze into the wife, into her face. Beholding glory there. Access has been, the veil has been lifted. You want to behold your love. This is exactly what Paul says. Verse 18, he says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. Through Jesus, there are no more barriers. And so what we do is we just behold this. This is an amazing thing. There should be barriers. There's not. The barriers have been removed. And now we behold the greatness of God. We look intently at it. We gaze at it. We observe it. We're studying it. A few years ago, we went to Victoria Falls when we were in Africa. Amazing sights. One of the biggest waterfalls in all the world. And when we were walking up there, there's a walking trail that goes through this this. Uh, I don't know, national site, whatever you want to call it. There's a walking trail that gives you different oversights of the waterfall. And so we go in, and like the first overlook into the waterfall, if you, some of you guys remember this, like, I'm just like, holy cow! Like, they're, they're, that is ama- that's an amazing view! And yet the trail keeps going on. So I'm like, well, I guess we've got to go sometime. I can't stay here all day and just look, although that would be worth it, that would be a fun use of my time. We keep going further in. We go to the next one, it's like, that's a good view too. Like this is really amazing. We just kept doing this over and over again. There's these different overlooks, different angles, different facets of the falls. And the whole time it's just this amazing thing to behold. Over and over and over again. It was just, wow. Cannot believe that that's a thing. And the same ought to be true as we behold God. As we go further along the path, it's not just like, oh, I kind of like that one better. No, we're just like, well, that was awesome, and well, this seems to be really good too. And so we never end up plumbing the depths of God's glory and greatness. We're just continuing to behold it. Different ways, different facets. We keep seeing the glory of God, and it never gets old. In fact, that's actually what heaven is. Beholding forever the glory of God. And so if you're not interested in beholding the glory of God, you're probably not going to be in heaven, and we would tell you to turn from that to Jesus. Because heaven is going to be this 
everlasting beholding of the greatness and glory of our God. That's what heaven is. So how do we do this? How, how do we behold God? Well, remember, once again, the glory of God is His infinite worth gone public. It's His beauty, His greatness, His goodness proclaimed to us. So here's what we do to behold it. We read it. In this book that we have in front of us, the Bible, we read about it, we study it, we observe it, we listen to it, we hear it, we spend time in it, we pray, we meditate on truths so we find about God here, we think about over This is beholding God. Now some of you might be like, I've done that. And I've never sensed God's glory. I've never had a feeling that I was just wowed by God. But here's the reality. is that it's not instantaneous. Like it's not something that's just going to happen. The best soups aren't cooked in the microwave. Well, I'd say this. I've never made them, so I don't know. The best soups aren't made in the microwave. They take time. You've got to simmer them. You've got to let them get the, the flavors like going throughout the soup. You, you take time. Low heat. Let them go. I think this is what people tell me. I don't make soups. I'm guessing you don't make them in the microwave though. So I think you understand. It takes time to see the flavors work out through the soup. It takes time to behold glory. Like it shouldn't be instantaneous. We shouldn't want it to be instantaneous because it's way more vast than some instant quick fix. It's bigger than that. It's better than that. And here's the result of beholding the glory of God. We continue on in 18. We are unveiled face, beholding glory of God, and we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is Spirit. Here's what happens when you behold the glory of God. Transformation happens. Transformation. The old covenant couldn't transform because there were barriers. There were things in between. But now we have unveiled faces and we behold the glory of God. And what this does is as we behold it, We get to know Him. And we start reflecting Him more and more and more. From one degree of glory to another. Do we want transformation in our lives? A lot of us would come in with some sort of problem. My guess is that some of us want to change in a lot of different areas. There's transformation that we would like to take place. In different areas of our lives. Some, some of us feel stuck in certain things. Some of us feel a constant struggle with certain sins in our lives. And here's what the scripture tells you. That what you need to be transformed isn't some 12 step program. Although that can be helpful. Here's what you have to have to be transformed. You have to behold the glory of God. That's what you have to have. To where if you miss this then you've missed the key to transformation. You might get some sort of outward change, but you're not getting the gospel change that God wants for your life. This is the key, beholding. And those who are beholding are transforming. So let's not miss or short-circuit the transformation process here because it starts with beholding the glory of God. That's where it starts. So often though, even as we say that, we might recognize that and say, yes, I believe that's true. But here's what happens, is that many of us would, would take the transformation without the beholding. Right? If God would transform this situation, this area of my life, this struggle, this sin, this addiction, this part of me, if He'd remove it without me beholding Him, we would say yes in a heartbeat. Wouldn't we? I know I, I've been there. I want transformation. And often I don't want to spend the time to behold the glory and greatness of God. We want the transformation without beholding the glory. But that's not the new covenant. That's not the ministry of the Spirit. 
That's not the gospel. See, the good news of the new covenant, the, new, the good news of the gospel, the greatest news there is, is there are no more barriers in Christ. That you get God, full access to God. This is the good news. You get God Himself. You don't get any barriers anymore. You just get God. That's the good news. And so when we want transformation without beholding, we miss it. We miss the, the best news that there is. We miss out on it. And what we're actually doing is we're usurping and going under, undercutting the transformation process. And we're not actually transformed. We might have changes. We might see things different externally. We might even feel different. Our minds might think differently. But we're not being transformed according to the Scripture. We're missing it. Wasn't this the heir of the old covenant? Didn't they want the transformation without worrying about the inward condition? Isn't this how we, we see the, the Pharisees pop into play? Is that they wanted transformation, they, they wanted to be righteous, but they just forgot about the internal? Just started doing the external, whatever it took? They were okay with transformation without beholding God. And we don't want to fall into that same error. We, we have no problem being exactly like that. Transformation without beholding. Man, don't, don't we need help? Here's where we read, For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This comes from the Lord. Yes, we need help, and God has given it. And with His help, we behold glory. It's unveiled. We have full access, and it's worth it. It's worth it to behold the glory of God and not skip that process just for change or transformation. And so we don't give it a little touch and move on to something else. Like we, we stay there. We're seeking transformation. So we're, we're going to stay there. We're not just going to give it a touch and say, oh, it just doesn't work for me. I'm not being transformed, so I'm going to something else. We stay there. We sit. We gaze. We observe. We look. We wait. We study. We do it all over again because we're looking at glory. And as we behold that He says, we'll be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We will be transformed until one day we will put on a body of glory. With bodies of glory, here's what we'll do. We'll finally and fully behold glory forevermore. Glory that is so bright, so great, so good that there's no sun anymore. And that the saints are constantly, as you see, any vision from heaven, pouring their praise out, singing as loud as they can, that this is really awesome. That's a summary. They keep saying over and over, like, they're amazed at God. They're falling down before Him. They're throwing stuff. We, we have nothing. This is amazing. That's what they're doing for eternity. This is what we'll do. We trust in Christ. And it's Valentine's Day. And I hope that if you have a significant other, like you spend time beholding the glory of your significant other. Behold your love's glory. Be intentional. That's what Valentine's Day is for, right? Like some intentionality with your love. Great. Like behold their glory. Get to know them. There's complexities there. There's, there's depth there. Like we just can't get to the bottom of it all the time. But here's what I'd also encourage for you today. That you behold the glory of God. You'd make time. That you'd be intentional. Behold His glory. Because access has been granted to you. Their veil has been lifted. God has invited us to enter in. To receive this fullness of glory. To behold Him. So would we be people who would sit and gaze and observe and wait. And look intently at and study and repeat over and over again. Just to see God's glory. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It it bids us fly and gives us wings. You have that today. Let's behold the glory of God.
God, we want to thank You for this new covenant and the ministry of the new covenant that gives to us sinners righteousness. That gives to us people who don't deserve Your presence the Spirit. That gives to us not the death that we deserve, but life in the name of Christ. And I pray that if there are any out there who have not turned to Jesus in their desperation, that maybe they would do it even now. So they might have life in His name. And for those who have, Lord, may we be encouraged that by beholding Your glory will be transformed. And that one day these lowly bodies will be gone and transformed completely into glorious bodies. Absent from flesh we're going to be. What a glorious day. God, may we look forward to it. And may we be people who, like Paul, who in this ministry of the new covenant were bold before others, saying, you can have life, you can have righteousness, it's all found in Christ. Would you turn to Him? God, help us to honor and lift up this gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.